This is another MP3 podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle, Australia. On 2NURFM 103.7, we're talking travel. And today, Barry Warwick from our sponsor Travel World on King is with us. And Barry Warwick, we've all been hooked on steam and travelling in the old-fashioned way. Is I, that what we're doing today? Well, I thought we'd start with that because um, particularly with Steamfest here in the Hunter, um, I thought that it was a really good opportunity to just uh, reiterate a little bit on steam trains. And there's always something, just that magical feel of the smoke billowing out behind the train and the chugging. And I suppose it brings back the romance of times uh, gone by. And Dunedin in um, the South Island of New Zealand in October having a um, their the centenary celebrations um, and a, a cavalcade of locomotives will take place at Dunedin railway stations. And I, uh, uh, sorry, not station, station. Um, and I thought that it was probably nice to talk about some of the, the old um, or some of these locomotives that will be there. So I suppose Dunedin being so far away from the rest of the other major centres in New Zealand probably relied a lot on steam trains. I, w- I would think that it's a, an integral part of their, their history and Dunedin's got a really Scottish feel about it and I suppose it's uh, probably got a bit of Scottish weather being so far down uh, on the southern tip of New Zealand. Uh, well, not southern tip, but, you know, getting down pretty well to the south anyway. Um but yes, I, I think that it's, it's good. And they've got, for example, um, one of the trains that will take place there, and this is, I guess, um, towards steam buffs, is the A67, uh, is the oldest uh, locomotive on the Ocean Beach Railway. Uh, it was built in 1873 by Dubs and Glow in Glasgow. So there's a relationship back to Scotland. Um, this engine has the distinction of being the oldest working locomotive in New Zealand. So, you know, it, it's... It'll be it, there. It'll be there. Um, there's the K88 Washington, um, and that's uh, undoubtedly New Zealand's most famous locomotive, and it was built in 1878 by the Rogers Locomotive Works in Pennsylvania. Um, the locomotive hauled the first train from Christchurch to Dunedin, so, you yes. know, again, mm. a little bit of history. Um, and in 1878, um, well, sorry, that was in 1878. And then there's the AB663. Uh, the AB class was introduced in 1915. So this is sort of, uh, I guess, getting close to the modern, uh, modern style steam uh, locomotives. Um, and it was designed to the requirements of um, an A8, H.H. Uh, H. Jackson by um, the Chief Draftsman S.A. Jenkinson of the AB Locomotives handled all types of services on the main lines and um, so it was um, until the 1930s they were the main express and freight locomotives for both islands of New Zealand so you know just a, again a nice little bit of uh, history um, and then there's the WOB 794 that's actually uh, was built at Hillside Dunedin in 1927 so you've got something that, that's sort of happening um, in the local you know really uh, with the local history It's rather nice that they'll all be getting together all these steam uh, locomotives as well as the people who appreciate them Exactly and uh, look I think that it's it, it is just for those steam buffs 
I think this is a great opportunity to um, to get across to Dunedin and really share. And Dunedin is such a pretty um, pretty place. It's also the the home of uh, Lanark Castle, which is the only castle I think in the Southern Hemisphere from memory, but um, certainly the only one in New Zealand. So uh, again, something that is uh, it's it's just a beautiful old uh, or has a beautiful old feel to it. So it's a university uh, town, isn't it? Dunedin, it is, or city, yes. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, steam trains in Dunedin sounds like a wonderful way to go. It's a, certainly a, a great centre for the area too, isn't it, Barry? It certainly is, and I mean, you've got the snow-capped mountains, and you know, it's just a lovely place to visit, as well as seeing snow. And the weather is starting to get a little bit better in October. It can be pretty chilly in the um, in the winter. On two and you are FM one hundred three point seven. We're talking travel, and Barry Warwick. We're in New Zealand. And where are we off to now? What are we looking at? Well, I thought we'd talk a little bit about plants today. Plants, uh, great. In New Zealand? In New Zealand, oh, that's lovely. right. Oh, lovely. Because New Zealand has all the, um, well, has the four definite seasons. And um, I think flowers in particular always are more spectacular when there's there's that seasonal change. I know that tropical plants have uh, beautiful flowers as well, but... Uh, the temperate climates do have some wonderful, um, wonderful shows of um, flowers. And I mean, the South Island of New Zealand, I know, uh, I can remember driving through there and just marvelling at the lupins. And it's something that, well, we don't really see here in um, particularly around the Newcastle area. Um, but the lupins, I've never seen plants so, so large. And, you know, the hollyhocks and it was just a spectacular countryside, and I know that they grow wild, and I don't even know whether they're a, a, a pest or not. But they certainly uh, add to the um, the scenery. The scenery. That's, mm. that's right. And also with the cold climate, rhododendrons are always a. Um, they always seem to do much better. I suppose they do much better in Victoria and the Blue Mountains here as well. But you know that that cold climate seems to bring them to um, their best in colour. And so um, I think New Zealand has a lot to offer in terms of, of just scenery. Even, uh, you know, the, the cowrie um, forests. Oh, yes, and they're wonderful trees, aren't they? they? Very tall. They're magnificent. And, you know, it's it's just a little bit different. Then you'll move on to, you know, they have a, a lot of uh, plantations, um, particularly pine plantations as well. Um, and, again... It's just this uh, varying um, degrees of... Uh, New Zealand is always lush, I suppose. Even the pastures are always green and lush. Yet you get into the South Island and you get the really tusky grass and a totally different type of um, to scenery as well. Um, and you've got the um, the Arctic beech trees as which, yes, they're lovely. Know. Yes, yes, we, we yeah, we would call them um, uh, probably a forest. I'm not sure that they do, but um, certainly New Zealand has a lot to offer. And um, there's a, actually a, a 12 day um, garden tour that's going to New Zealand. This is a, a one off departure, so. Um, and that takes in a lot of it the. It takes in a lot of these, you know. It'll take in the Taranaki uh, Rhododendron and Garden Festival, for example. Um, you start off, you'll start off in the North Island. So, um, and again, you've you've got uh, Rotorua, which not only has the the vegetation, but you know you've got uh, all the hot springs and the mud and the smell. Yes. Uh, 
and and the trout as well. But uh, it takes in that uh, moves to the South Island as well. Um, and again, Bay of Islands uh, area of New Zealand, uh, you've the got north, this. Mm. Not only have you got the spectacular vegetation, but it goes down to the beaches and wonderful beaches, and again, just magnificent scenery to. Um, Wet the appetite of anyone or satisfy the appetite of anyone. So um, New Zealand definitely a place to go um, if you if you want to see spectacular plants. So both in the wild and in people's gardens. Exactly. Manicured yeah. ones. Sounds great. To NURFM one hundred three point seven, and we're talking travel. Barry Warwick. Jane, I thought we'd go to talk about airlines um, in this segment. Uh, airlines, as uh, you've probably heard in the news, are facing tough times with the increase in fuel and a number of them are starting to increase their fuel surcharges. Um, and just one thing that I, I thought I'd let uh, listeners know is that fuel surcharges are often put in as taxes. So once upon a time when you looked at the fare that was really what you paid and then you had a few little bits and pieces of taxes, government taxes that were added on. Now when you quoted a fare, the fare may look fairly cheap but it may escalate um, quite dramatically with all the fuel surcharges that different airlines apply and different airlines apply different fuel surcharges to different flights. So uh, the more stops you have, the more those fuel surcharges will actually um, cost up. you. Yeah. Is there a reason for that? Um, I guess the main reason is that um, the airlines have been dropping commissions to agents for quite a long time, and this is one way of actually making sure that they are dropped even further. So um, basically, you, you look now, I did a fare the other day, which the, the fare was about 2000 to Europe, um, and this was this was in the high season, but the actual taxes were $629. So, you know, you were looking at a really good good deal and, uh, you know, when these fuel surcharges suddenly added on, uh, it was a big impost on the on the total fare. And I think, you know, sometimes people get think, oh, yeah, the fare's only that, or they see the fare in the paper and they'll think, oh, yeah, that's, that's really um, an economical fare. But when they go in to buy it, it ends up being far more expensive. Um, the other thing that the airlines add into that is the insurance. When September 11 happened, they um, they sort of put that into that that area as well. So that's called a tax too. That's called a tax. So it all goes in this this little tax box. Um, so it makes it really difficult these days to compare um, airfares. Um, even if you're looking at you know a, a Sydney London airfare, British Airways taxes may be say four hundred dollars uh, someone else's might be four hundred and fifty someone else's three eighty nine and basically you're doing the same journey so it does make it a little bit more difficult to compare um, them and it takes a while to work out the taxes so quite often it's easier uh, you know to to see in papers although they're supposed to include the taxes um, but sometimes they they still drop in a fare just to whet the appetite. But talking about fares, the one of the alliances, uh, which is a 
usually a good way to travel. For example, the Star Alliance is um, Singapore Airlines and um, United Air New Zealand, Lufthansa, Scandinavian Airlines system, so that um, you can use that the, all of those carriers. And um, there's slightly different conditions on round-world airfares, but they make round-world airfares reasonably um, reasonably economic. Um, there's also the One World Alliance with uh, Qantas and British Airways that are the, the, the main ones in that one, uh, Iberian, Cathay. And again, it's one that we know from Australia. But there is actually a third uh, one which is called SkyTeam. Now, there are now 10 carriers that um, participate in that one. Um, it has... Uh, airlines such as um, Aeromexico, Aeroflot, Air France, Alitalia, uh, Continental Airlines, Czech Airlines, um, Delta in the United States, KLM Royal Dutch Airlines, Korean Air, which is the only one that really comes to Australia, although Continental do actually fly into Australia into Cairns, which is um, a little bit, bit odd, uh, and Northwest Airlines. Now, uh, again, this uh, for certain itineraries, uh, is a good alternative to the other the other two that we see most of. Probably not quite as convenient because you you know your entrance into and out of Australia is uh, via career, but it does have its place and it's something to uh, for people to uh, look look at. And what's uh, this alliance called? It's called Sky Team. Sky Team, yes. Yes. Appropriate name, yeah. But you know, certainly uh, with Mexico, with Aero Mexico, it takes you into a slightly different um, area. Uh, Czech Airlines and Aeroflot. Well, again, you particularly when you start looking at Russia, um, you know, Aeroflot's obviously a a fairly uh, good um, airline alternative there. So, do you get extra special fares if you fly with several different lines from the same team? Well, basically what they do is they, um, most of them work on a mileage basis. So you're allowed to travel, say, 26,000 miles um, that have five stops, but must have a minimum of three, must fly around the world. Uh, so across both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans is usually the um, the rules to them. But it does give you a fairly good way. The, the fares then go up. There's a 29,000-mile one. It has, um, for example, in the, the One World Alliance, it allows for 15 stops. So where you really need to and want to have stops, um, it's a really good alternative. And while the fares start from around about the um, 2,700 for that 29,000-mile, um, again, you've got the taxes to add on top of that. But it can certainly be cheaper in the long run rather than buying um, cheap airfares once you get you to your destination. You know, you might buy a return to Europe and then you take Ryanair or someone else and, yes, you're getting a cheap fare. But by the time you add up all the totals, it might have been better to do a round-world one in the beginning. An option to consider. An option to consider. And that's Talking Travel for today. Yeah. Thank uh, you, Barry Warwick. Thanks, Jane. From our sponsor, Travel World on King. Back next Friday after the one o'clock news here on 2NURFM 103.7.